So today's episode features me sitting down with one of my good friends in the business, the biographer Jonathan Eig, as we discuss his upcoming release, King, A Life. And what you're going to hear mainly is two authors chopping it up about the hellish, hellish, hellish hell that is pre-release. The anxieties, the pressure, the fear, the hope. It's just also fucking real and crippling. And since John and I discuss the subject often one-on-one, I just thought it'd be cool to do so thoroughly over burgers and drinks with you. So I hope it works for you guys. My name is Jeff Perlman. I'm the New York Times bestselling author of 10 books and the host of Two Writers Slinging Yang, a podcast where one writer, me, talks writing with another writer every single week. And today's guest is Jonathan Eig, my friend, the New York Times bestselling author of five books, including Luckiest Man, the biography of Luke Gehrig, and Ali, the biography of Muhammad Ali, and also the author of the upcoming biography, King, A Life, about Martin Luther King. This is episode number 307, recorded live at Crave Cafe in Southern California. Let's sling some yang. Dad, your podcast sucks. And nobody cares about your stupid TV show. All right, Jonathan and I, we are sitting in the Crave Cafe in Sherman Oaks, California. And you have a Martin Luther King biography coming out in uh, a month? Yep, a month. Okay. I really want to talk on this one about... Um, leading up to a book, a book coming out, and the lead up, and the sort of everything that goes into promoting a book, pre-promoting a book, and I feel like you're really grinding on this one, like hardcore, and um, is this misery, or do you enjoy the challenge of it all? No, I do not enjoy the challenge of selling the book. I enjoy enjoy writing the book and researching the book, and this is all anxiety. This is all just me trying not to fail, although that's that's how I approach writing the book, too, is trying not to fail, but... Um, the marketing and the, and the sales and the reviews feel like they're out of my control, really, and yet I'm trying it to do everything I can to control it, nevertheless. All right, so I feel like you've done a lot of interesting things in promoting this book. Have a bite of your burger, please. Um, you got the veggie burger. You're a somewhat kosher man. I thought you were my friend. Now you're, now you're saying I'm somewhat kosher. Now I'm eating a veggie burger. <laughs> There's no bacon on that veggie burger. You're good. Thank you. Yeah, okay. So, um, do you like entering a book? All right, it's an interesting challenge because you have a book about a larger than larger than larger than larger to be cliched life figure. Um, it does not have a specific demographic, meaning you wrote a Lou Gehrig book. We were talking about this before. Gehrig, you could, you could certainly focus on Yankee fans, on uh, organizations that uh, deal with ALS, etc. Jackie Robinson, baseball, Muhammad Ali, boxing. King is a huge umbrella, civil rights, and American icon. Going into sort of promoting it, like what are you, what are you thinking? What are you targeting? What are you looking for? I'm targeting all my Google and Facebook ads at fans of the Atlanta Dream, WNBA fans. That if they name a team after after the guy, yeah. the only team in history named after a speech, that's that's powerful. That's my demographic, and they, they got a lot of fans. So if I can just sell every sell books to them. I'm off to a good start. Are there a lot of Atlanta Dream fans in America? I don't. In Atlanta, there are. Oh. Um, no, I. You're right. I, it's a big demographic. I think everybody should read this book. But then again, I thought everybody should read my Ali book and my Birth of the Pill book too. And I stand by that. Uh, but if you're going to focus, where are you going to focus? Um, I think obviously um, African Americans may be particularly interested in this book. I think. Um, People who follow politics, follow um, follow people who care about religion. Um, I seriously think we should target like people who go to church. Uh, that would be, if I'm buying Facebook ads, uh, you know, Google, Google ads, I would I would try to find people who go to church and because there's, there's a lot of religion in this book. So I don't know, but it's a pretty you're right. It's a it's a broad demographic. So I'm, I'm not sure. I just want everybody to know about it. All right, so let's let's actually break this down a little bit because it's been a long time since I've had a guest on where we talk about promoting a book. It's it's, it's one of my favorite subjects. I think I enjoy it a lot more than you do. We're supposed to act like we don't care that you know Bro, we're all about the art. Come on, <laughs> I actually enjoy the challenge a little bit, even though I complain about it. Um, okay, do you go into promoting a book counting on 
the publishing company and the PR team from the publishing company to do anything? And I don't mean they won't do anything, but do you think in your head, okay, this is what I need from them? Yeah, and I think you can count on them. I think they've always done a good job for me. Like, I've loved my book publicists. And um, the first one for my Lou Gehrig book was a superstar. She went on, like, she was, she was literally um, waiting tables part-time and, and working as a junior publicist. And, and she did such a great job on Luckiest Man that they hired her full-time and now she's like the head publicist at one of the giant publishing companies she's a stud and um, all my publicists have done a good job but I don't count on them to do everything because they're they've, they've got a bunch of books they're juggling I'm not their only client and um, their whole career isn't on the line if the book doesn't do well so I'm supplementing that with, with tons of my own efforts and sometimes hiring other publicists um, at my own expense to supplement what, what the publisher is doing. Right. Okay. So you mentioned sort of Google Facebook ads. Are you yourself buying Google Facebook ads? No, I've tried that and I suck at it. So I hired somebody to do it for me now. All right. Okay. But you are you are placing ads in, in different places. Yes, I am. All right. You've probably seen them. Do you already have them out? Yeah. Um, just started like a week or two ago. Okay. Oh, wait. You actually, to make this process easier, you hired a, like who, what kind of people would you hire and what do you, what do you, what do you hire them for? I hired a digital marketing specialist who um, built my website. Did you not have a website? I had a website that I built myself on Squarespace and uh, I decided I needed a better one. <laughs> and David Marinus told me who did his website and who ran his social marketing campaign and he did that Jim Thorpe book hit the bestseller list in week one so I thought whoever did your and he was and I saw what he was doing on social media and I know David Marinus is not like that spending that much time on on okay. Twitter so I thought the guy did a good job for Dave and um, I hired I hired his guy well I just want to say sorry David Marinus if I outed you there and you didn't uh, I don't think he I, I think he's he's probably not listening to this podcast anyway but even if he is I think he'd be happy but I think it's um I actually think that Jim Thorpe book is a fascinating example of the weirdness of this industry like I thought it was a really cool idea for a book it's a great book did I think that book would sell a million copies like did I think a Jim Thorpe book in 2022 would just you know reach very high on the New York Times list um, I didn't it doesn't mean I didn't think it would sell moderately well but I didn't think it would do that well and yet somehow or another a Jim Thorpe book did big numbers and yeah I noticed that too, and I think it's mostly because David Marinus is awesome, and a lot of readers recognize that he's awesome. And um, if his digital marketing guy helped a little bit, um, it was only because you know he had a great face to build from, which is David Marinus's amazing talent. Um, so I may not be able to match Marinus's talent, but I can match his digital marketing guy. Right. <laughs> All right. So what has the digital marketing guy done for you? He, he built me a much better website. He's um, this is really boring. No, I love this stuff. He uh, showed me how to post, stuff, create a calendar, post stuff in advance, post it automatically on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, um, load it all up so that I don't have to do it, concentrated on it all the time. Um, told me what kind of stuff worked best on each platform, and um, and then he's he's in charge of like the advertising, helping me decide where to spend my my ad money. I'm spending like. I don't know, fifty bucks a week on on ads, so it's not, it's not much. And if it, and if it starts to work, it looks like he's getting clicks. Then I'll I'll, I'll up that. See right. what happens. Does he have a sort of? Do you feel like he has a philosophy where the best routes to selling books lie? Like, what are the best sort of avenues to getting people to notice that you have a book out and that they want to buy it? What he's told me is that for anything you're selling, people have to see it five or six times before they before they buy it, and um, that means that you just need to be out there and you're out there like crazy on social media I'm not that's because I'm a whore and you're not a whore as a fact well you're good at it and uh, I just I've never really had the, the time or the energy and, I, and I've often felt like it just doesn't really sell books and I don't think people buy books based on what they see on Twitter and Instagram um, but his point is well you gotta hit them over the head five or six times and eventually they will. Um, maybe they'll see the New York Times review and then they'll say, oh yeah, I saw that guy on Twitter and Instagram. I don't know. But the point is that like, I don't believe in it, but I'm, I feel like I have to try everything. 
It is interesting. So, um, Howard Bryant. Do you know Howard? Yeah. Yeah. Howard Bryant wrote the great Ricky Henderson book. He's a great, great writer. He recently left Twitter. And I was like, you left Twitter? And he was like, he basically said, unless you have, I don't know what he said, 500,000 followers, what's the point of it all? And then you just get angry and you just repeat the same shit over and over again. And I'm definitely guilty of that. And I think he's probably right, but I can't tell, but I don't have the guts to, I have 75,000 people following me. And that is direct marketing to 75,000 people. Yeah. Presumably some of them are interested in my books. I want to quit Twitter. I do, I swear to God, I fucking hate Twitter. I don't really know what to do. Do you, are you just a, are you agnostic about social media or what you? Yeah, no, I, I'm, I'm repulsed by it philosophically and I'm on there anyway. So how, what does that say? Um, it's because A, you know, we like hearing our own voices. We, we all have egos and it makes me feel good to know that my friends are hitting like on my tweets or whatever. Um, and, um, and I'm thinking it is free marketing. It, you know, might help sell some books and I don't know. I feel bad though because occasionally I post pictures of my friend, of my kids, and like I pretend that I'm into this because I care about my my friends <laughs> seeing how lovely my children are. But I'm really just trying to sell books to people who already like me and you know don't need to be don't need to have their arms twisted. So it does feel stupid. Is there something in your past that you feel like um, with past books that work most effectively in terms of selling the actual book? Are there things that just kind of Help the book take off. Could be anything. Regis Philbin. Hmm? Regis. Regis Philbin. Hey, what happened? <laughs> and, and, uh, what book is this? Luckiest Man, my first book. Okay. Um, it was selling pretty well. Um, and a friend of mine was a producer, uh, Laurie Schulweiss, shout out to Laurie, was a producer for Regis. And he's, Regis is a huge Yankee fan. She said, send me a copy of the book, I'll stick it in his suitcase when he leaves for the Hamptons the next weekend. So she stuck it in a suitcase. He came back, and Lori says, watch the show today. So I turn on the TV, and there's Regis holding up my book the week before Father's Day. And he says, I'm reading this great book. Wow. And he describes and summarizes the book in 20 seconds more brilliantly and persuasively than I ever could have. All right. And the book hit the bestseller list the next week. So everybody, my advice to you on how to make a bestseller is reincarnate Regis Philbin. Get Regis Philbin to hold up your book on the air before Father's Day and say to women all over America that they should buy this book for their husbands. You know Regis is dead, right? What? <laughs> Did you know he died? I was counting on that for my next <laughs> book, man. <laughs> Kelly Rip is still alive. Um, okay, Kelly, are you listening? Hey, one thing that's interesting, I'm eating a fry, is, um, okay, you've gotten really good reviews so far you get the review from Publishers Weekly, you get the review from Library Journal, right? You have those both. And we all, all of us, we get those reviews, right? And we go, oh my God, this is awesome. And we tell whoever, our wife or girlfriend or boyfriend or whatever, oh my God, this review. <laughs> Do those things mean shit to anybody but us? I will say, yeah, they mean, they help you get more publicity. Like if you get some starred reviews, then maybe you have a better chance of getting on the Today Show or something like that, or getting on NPR. So yeah, it helps a little bit. And maybe like Library Journal helps you get, helps more librarians decide that they should put your book in the library. So it helps a little bit. No. I think every every review helps, but I don't think reviews in general sell books like they used to. I'm gonna sound like a cranky old man now, but Do it. when Luckiest Man came out, it got like 50 newspaper reviews. 50 different newspapers in America had book review sections. Yeah. Oklahoma City, Peoria Journal. I still remember there was reviews, right? Like. Dallas Morning News, Fort Worth, Star Telegram, they all reviewed the book. They all assigned different people. They paid reviewers to review my book. Now, none of those papers have book review sections anymore. So you don't get as many. So I, I think the quantity really helps because, again, getting back to my marketing guy, website design guy, he says you gotta see, you gotta see the book several times before you drive it to buy it. You walk past the window in the mall and you see it in Walden Books or Barnes and Nobles or Borders, right? You see it in your local paper, then you hear it on NPR. So then you, you know, that's enough to trigger you to buy it. But we don't have those. We don't have book reviews anymore, except for the, you know, the New York Times and the Washington Post, maybe. Yes, we don't have. We don't have Borders or Walden books. Right. Two of the three bookstores dead. That's my point. Yeah. Is that there's just not as many ways for you to come across the book. I still, to this day, <laughs> just yesterday, ran into a guy who said, "I'm the biggest Jackie Robinson fan in the world," and I said, "Did you know about this book that I wrote?" I said, "Never heard of it." 
So like, and I have people, Ali fans, who are huge Ali fans, who own, you know, Ali posters and Ali shirts, Ali sweatshirts, um, and they don't know that I wrote a new Ali book because how do you know that there's a new book out there anymore? Books just don't cross our radar um, as much because the stores are gone and the book review sections are gone and I'm sure not like advertising it on TV or anything. So how are you going to know about it? You consider, do you think the New York Times book review still matters in a fairly major way? Uh, getting a really good review in the Times book review. Yeah, I think it matters. I got a mouthful of hamburger. That's okay. Um, no one's judging you here. I think it matters. I think it can really kill a book if it gets a bad oh. review. It almost seems like that's. It almost seems like it can hurt a book. A negative review can hurt the book more than a glowing review can help a book. Do you just? Is that yeah, I think that's right. Um, um, I think certain books, like they come out of nowhere, the glowing review can really help it. But if, but. It's rare. I don't think there are that many books that are like launched just by the New York Times book review alone. Um, I feel like you have to get, again, you have to get that and a bunch of other things. You got to get, you know, NPR, Terry Gross, Fresh Air, plus the new. When it when it becomes like unavoidable, when people go, oh, I'm seeing this book everywhere. I guess I really do need to check it out. I don't know about you, but like, there's popular novels that I'll that I'll buy, but only after like two people have told me they read it. You know, I've seen review, I've heard it on NPR. It's like, okay, fine, it must really be good because I've heard five people now raving about it. So what page you on in uh, Prince Harry's biography? Page you have to. No, not happening. Um, I got too many Colleen Hoover books to get through oh, before, yeah, I get to, before I get to Prince Harry. Do you, um, how much stock do you put in your Amazon ranking and where you stand on Amazon? And when you have a book coming out, how often do you look at the Amazon ranking? Oh wait, does Amazon actually put them in order or rank? Is <laughs> a rank order on them? Oh, right here. <laughs> My book's still a month out, and, I, and I'm checking it already. You are? Like, oh yeah, it's terrible. It's it's terrible, but it's compulsive. When the book's out, like I I, I used to like I would check it every hour the first few days when the book just came out. That's I, and I hate that, but I do. I have to admit it. Interesting. I right, wait. So a couple of things about this book that are interesting. You um, you showed me an early cover that you didn't like as much as your cover now. Your cover now is great. It's a beautiful, beautiful cover. Is this a taboo topic? No, that's no. cool. And um, I don't know, random thing. How how big of a difference do you think, obviously there's no science here, does the cover make and actually the sales of the book? There's no way to know, you know, um, unless you did like three different covers and, and you, and I, I think there are some books that have done that where they put out different covers and see which one sells the best. Um, there's no way to know and it's really just, a personal choice. Um, you know, but the British version of this book is a totally different vibe, totally different cover, much more like traditional patriotic, red, white, and blue, king, you know, with his hand up and, you know, at a podium, like exactly what you'd expect for a king book. And maybe you should just go with what people expect, what people want. This is a much moodier cover. Um, it, I hope it says that this is like a more intimate biography. This is not a, um, you know, a standard, political book book this is going to be something that you know you're really going to feel it you're going to you're going to be sad and angry when you finish i hope that the mood that the book the cover conveys that because i shot down the first cover they pitched to me okay. it was artsy interesting but ultimately it left me like scratching my head what are you trying to say about the book here um if it if it said something other than like artsy interesting i might have gone for it but it didn't to me so, and that, but who am I to judge? Like, I'm not a, a graphic designer. I'm not an artist. I, I could be wrong. Um, you know, I, I, I asked them to like redesign the cover for my Capone book and- Redesigned it the, after it came out? No, the first one they sent, I didn't like it. And the one they came up with, I was fine with, but like, why should I be the guy who decides that? I, I'm, I'm, I'm good at what's inside the book, I'm, I'm, but I really, maybe I should just leave it to the experts on, the, on what goes on the cover. Definitely a tough call because you know the thing that's I find so frustrating about this all as we sit here eating burgers is um you could you could spend whatever you spent on your publicity team and the book could sell like shit. You could not hire a publicity team and somehow the book winds up in Regis's hands and it blows up. I just feel like there's much less in our control. Then, like you would think MLK, oh, that's gonna be a huge seller. It's MLK, it's gonna be a big seller, but you just don't know. Yeah, and it's kind of like with your kids, like, well, 
I don't know what's right, but I'm going to pay for those expensive piano lessons anyway. Right. Yeah. Sure, they're probably not going to be professional pianists, but like, I got to do everything I can to give these kids like every you know whatever lift I can. Um, and it's with the same thing with the book. Like, I'm only going to write a, you know a small number of books in my life. If I get to ten, like that would be pretty damn good. What is this um, number? This is number six. Um, I don't think I'm going to make it to 10 at, you this, don't? at this rate. Really? Uh, unless I start writing some much easier ones. Um, this is too hard. So, you know, it took me six years. So I want to do like everything possible, even if it's stupid. Like I once paid some guy to wear a t-shirt with my book picture, with a picture of my book on it. Like it was Wait, some, you did? Yeah, it was like, he was, he was popular for a moment on the, on the internet for like, I'll wear, I'm going to wear a t-shirt every day and my, you know, millions of followers will see that t-shirt. I, I, I paid him 50 bucks, right? Like, I'll, I'll you try anything because you're desperate because you feel like I, can, I, I gotta do everything I can think of so you're just throwing shit at the wall is that uh, your craziest thing paying the guy the t-shirt maybe um <laughs> there might be stupider things that I've done um but I don't know my um my thing I did that I kinda like and now it's mainly out of superstition is I always have the publishing company print out like 5,000 postcards and I go to wherever you know, for Barry Bonds, I went to Giants, wherever the Giants, Pac Bell, for Bo Jackson, I did it at Auburn, and I just put him in cars, and I put yeah. him in cars, and I feel like direct marketing, at least, if nothing else, it's direct marketing to the customers themselves. When you know exactly where your customers are, and they're all in one parking lot, that helps, you know, right. if you're doing Walter Payton book, and you go to a Bears game, why wouldn't you, because that's like, that is absolutely your target audience, so like, if I could hand out postcards every Sunday at Ebenezer Baptist Church, I would. Maybe I should hire somebody to stand out in front of the church. Um, That's a good idea, actually. Um, Maybe. I, well, what I'm trying to do is, you know, get a gig there, a speaking gig there, which would be more direct than <laughs> standing in the parking lot, right? Um, and more fun. But yeah, um, I, I think when you've got a target audience, it, and maybe it's stupid because you can only even if you hand out five thousand postcards, how many of them are going to convert? Is it and is that better than? targeting a Facebook ad to, you know, Chicago Bears fans. I don't know. But, we, but my point is, like you, I'll try anything that, that I can that seems to make sense that isn't, you know, illegal or prohibitively expensive. I go slightly illegal. I don't mind breaking into, like, is it illegal going to a parking garage you're not supposed to be in where it says no solicitation? Is that illegal? I've done that. I'm, not, I'm not a lawyer. Yeah. I'm going to pass on that one. <laughs> um, do you... Do you have someone who arranges your speaking engagements for you, or are you calling all these places and saying, hey, hey, hey? Well, my publicist, Farrar Strauss for this book, they're doing that, and they're setting up a tour. And I did hire an extra publicist uh, who's also helping with that, and they've been great. They got me in the watch in the National Cathedral in Washington. Oh, wow. Um, they got me probably in, um, in the Dexter Avenue Baptist Church in Montgomery. They're getting me bigger venues than I would have gotten on my own. They got um, Eleanor Holmes Norton, Congresswoman, to be my interviewer oh. on stage at, the, at the Politics and Prose. So I'm super happy about that. Is, um, if you had like a, you know, whatever dream list, your three, three things you appear on, right? You mean media? Media, three, three biggies. Regis, Regis, Regis. <laughs> dead, 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 <laughs> not happening. Um, I don't know. Like I was on the Daily Show with John Stewart, huge thrill, like unbelievably exciting, and I didn't it didn't sell a whole lot. Really? Of books. Did not sell books. Um, Wait, what book was that? That was for Capone. And you saw no bump, really? A little bump, not much. Um, Fresh Air gets a good bump, for sure. Um, I did um, the Today Show, decent bump. Like Who did you do that for? Um, that was for. I think it was for the Gehrig book, but it was on like late in the program, like in the third hour. Yeah. So that kind of makes a big difference. Um, I'm trying to think which media folks have sold the most books, or at least, you know, appear to sell the most books. I think anything on NPR is good. Because um, NPR listeners are book buyers. Yeah. Um, I don't know. I think it also some of it is like how much time will they give you? Can you like really help people get to know and, and, and get excited about the book? Um, so if you can get, you know, one-on-one -on -one discussion on Book Talk TV that goes for like a whole hour, that's maybe better than having, you know, 60 seconds on the Today Show. I gotta say, so I did, I got on Today Show for this book, Bo Jackson, 
And I was kind of like, I didn't think it would be a big bump because sports, today's show, I don't think that's really the demo. And I had a huge bump. I was actually shocked. Huge bump. NPR. I feel like every NPR show you do, national NPR show you do, huge bumps. Yeah. Huge bumps. The ones I don't find that effective is local TV. In fact, I don't know if those things sell anybody. Yeah. I don't think that people just want to wait. They're just waiting for the weather. Yeah. Come on. Um, yeah. Local radio, local sports radio is good, though. Um, um, what's the name? Um, Mike Francesca and uh, Mike and Chris Russo. Yeah, when I was on that show for Gary, that sold a ton of books. Those guys were awesome. Sports radio. Well, you're not getting any sports radio from Arthur Vicky. Probably probably not. Um, How, like, one thing I was thinking, so this is a thick book. And sometimes I think about, you know, Jane Levy, who we know, great writer, great writer, wrote a Babe Ruth book. It didn't do that great. And it was a great book. It's thick. And I wonder at all, because I think about this all the time, if you worry about this in this modern age of phones and holding, if you worry about the size of a book having any correlation to sales of a book. Yeah, but. That doesn't mean you should write it too much. You gotta be true to your story. Sure. So, yeah, I've had people say to me straight up, I would have bought your Ali book, but there's no way I was gonna read it. That's just too long. I've had people say that to me directly, like, okay. Thanks for trying. How about just reading half of it? Um, but uh, bottom line is, you're not doing it all for the sales. You're doing it for the story and for telling it right. And you got to write the book that you think is right. And Ali deserves 600 pages. And um, could I have shortened it a little bit? Maybe. But I also could have made it longer. Like I, I found, I thought I was, I found the sweet spot. Do you ever, ever actually think about sales when you're writing a book? Yeah, I think about it all the time. I, you do? I want the book to find a big audience. I, like so to, does that impact how you write a book? Yeah, I try to make it read well. Yeah. I try to write well, it well, you would be doing that anyway. Though. Yeah, but um, that's it. Like, I'm, I'm not making it more commercial. I'm not saying, well, um, I should leave out all of this stuff about his sex life because that could hurt sales. That could be a backlash and people might come down on me. Um, so I should just leave that out. Um, or... I should leave out this whole section of, of Ali's life after boxing because that part's boring and people are going to care. No, you got to tell the story the way you think it deserves to be told. So I'm not focused on, but I, I want the biggest possible audience, but I also want it to be the best book possible. So I'm trying to balance that. Right. We um, actually, here's something we have in common, which is do you have an MLK book coming out? I'm working on a Tupac book. We're both white Jewish guys. And Early on when I was working on the Tupac book, I definitely had people say to me, uh, why should you be Why should you be writing this book? You know, why should you be writing this book? Who are you to write this book? Cultural appropriation, et cetera, et cetera. Um, have you had that at all? And do you at all, do you have to be prepared for that question when you're promoting it? And do you have an answer? Well, you just asked me the question, so I guess I, guess I should <laughs> well, have, been, I should have been prepared for it. Yeah. Um, no, you have to be sensitive and you have to think about about doing it the right way. And you know, for me, I was writing my Ali book and interviewing people who knew King and realized that like there's an opportunity to write a book about King with living witnesses, people who knew him well, and there were dozens of them still alive. And I asked them if they would cooperate with me. I asked Harry Belafonte and Andrew Young and John Lewis and King's um, friends from Atlanta and they started talking to me, and, and, and then I asked some of the African-American historians who knew King best and had devoted their lives whether they thought there was need for a new biography, and the answer I got was yes, unanimously, and that they would help me. And I shared my research materials with them and became part of this incredible community of people who were you know, devoting their lives to researching King's work. And um, you know, I just tried to you know, humbly ask permission to do this and to to get the cooperation and to give the cooperation to others and that's how I approached it so I didn't you know I didn't want to you know sort of shoot myself down before I got started I wanted to at least try and see if people were receptive to having me do the book yeah so were they yeah I mean I did it and and nobody has, has complained so far maybe they will when the book comes out but um 
I've, I've had a, just an incredible experience with like a great community of people supporting me. And one of the things that I hope comes from this is that there'll be more King biographies. Somebody, hopefully like a woman of color, needs to do a Coretta Scott King biography. We desperately need one. So I'm hoping that this book, especially if it sells well, will sort of prime the pump and, and bring more books into the world. Um, it's certainly not going to be the last King biography, um, but I'm, you know, I'm, I'm an evangelist now. Like I'm, I'm hoping that I can get more books on, on King and on on the, on the people around him into the world. Actually, I will say it's kind of funny. Like I've probably had that said to me eight or nine times. Like about should you be writing a two book? And I would say if there was eight or nine times, let's say it's nine, eight were actually white people who said that to me. In fact, most people seem pretty unbothered. I think people are kind of happy that you're doing it, right? It's kind of interesting, actually. I haven't really thought about that. I think it's probably true. Yeah, the same for me. Most people who said it were white people, but um, it's a good question. I'm I'm happy to talk about it. Um, And I think that, um, yeah, the bottom line is like we're devoting years of our life to a story that we think is important and that that's, you know, trying to make a contribution to help people better understand these characters and that um, that's a, to me that's the bottom line um i'm already complaining about my tupac book to my wife pretty much every day <laughs> this is the worst god this is so hard this is fucking impossible i'm losing my mind on and on and on and um i mean you know we both write books we both go through the grind like why do we do this you know like don't you ever look, I mean, seriously, we're sitting in a coffee shop. Don't you ever like see the person making the drinks and think that seems like a really nice, at eight o'clock that person's going home and they're not thinking about the drink still, you know? No, I never once had that thought. Never? I feel like I'm the luckiest guy in the yeah. world. Like, no, seriously. Like, you never think that? No, no, I don't, I wouldn't want a job that like turned off. I, I love the fact that like, I mean, my mind is engaged with something that really fascinates me. Like I'm getting a, basically the equivalent of a doctorate yeah. And studying Martin Luther King and I'm getting paid to do it like what could be better than that like I'm just really curious to learn more about these people I'm not writing the book um, as a job um, I would have paid several hundred thousand dollars for the privilege to be a biographer of Martin Luther King yeah. right so like no that's not never in you're making life. me feel horrible <laughs> you don't feel you, the torture at all the torture you agree with me and you know it I won't wait I love doing this job I love writing the book. I do consider it an honor. Like, this is an honor for me. And, like, writing about Tupac is an honor for me. And, like, for the rest of your life, there's going to be a book out there that you're at your name and his name on the cover. Like, you're linked to this guy right. forever now. And I'm linked to Al Capone forever now, too, which is not, like, the greatest. But <laughs> my other one. The pill, you're linked to the pill forever. Yeah, I'm proud of that. Yeah. Um, and, and it also, like, you're bringing in new ideas into the world. People are going to read this stuff. There's a woman writing a play based on my birth control book now. Like, how unbelievably cool is that? So you're. You're, you're going to pass this along and you're going to pass your, your, your enthusiasm, your passion for this subject along to other people. Like, I just think it's the coolest thing in the world. Before we continue with Two Riders Sling Yang, quick word from our sponsor. Hey, this is Jeff Perlman, and I'm here with my little adorable niece, Amelia, who's all about the snazzy throwback gear available at royalretros.com. So, Amelia... Would you say you're more of a New Jersey General's hat person or a San Francisco Demon's hoodie gal? Amelia, are you going to go with the Seattle Pilot's jacket or the Southern California Sun mini helmet? No. Amelia, seriously, it's me, Uncle Jeffy, fun Uncle Jeffy. Can you just help a guy out with his only sponsor? I love you, girl, but you're fired. One thing I suffer from when I'm writing, this is basically me seeking comfort or something. Um, I always feel like I'm not doing enough. Like today was a transcription day. And I think about all the things I probably should have been doing instead of transcribing audio. When you're working on a book, do you go through that at all? Like, am I doing enough? How, why am I not making the progress I want to make? Do you, does that torture you at all or zero? Oh, yeah. I mean, totally does. I mean, I always feel like writing a book is the stupidest thing you can try to do. It just doesn't make any sense. One person can't do it. One person, uh, 10 people can't do it. You can't tell another person's life story, but we're going to try it anyway. And then you cannot gather all the information that needs to be gathered. You cannot talk to every single person you need to talk to. So you have to accept the idea that like you're destined to fail and you're just trying to fail as minimally as possible. 
Um, so if you think about it the wrong way, you'd be crippled with like insecurity and you'd, you'd, you'd be paralyzed. Right? So you have to like try to like block that out and just think that I gotta do everything humanly possible. I gotta do everything I can, and I have to do it all myself, and I have to remember everything that I'm learning, and I have to figure out a cool way to file the damn stuff because like there's no organizational system that can possibly really fit for writing a biography. I don't have a team of assistants or clerks to keep track of where I'm going to forget stuff that I found. It's, it's totally imperfect and totally ridiculous and still like something else I'd rather do. Yeah. Damn it. That's true. <laughs> it's true. It is true. And I'll, you know, it's kind of funny is like, like, okay, if you could take me, you, Marinus, Howard Bryant, whoever, seven different biographers, right? Who've written on subjects that kind of cross over each other. We would have seven completely different ways of doing it. You know, like if you're doing a math problem, there's basically one way to solve a math problem, you know, but like, it's weird how we all have these different approaches and they're all totally imperfect. Like there's no, right. Have you, I have no solution to any of this shit. None. Zero. I print out everything. Yeah. And then if you taught a class, like you can teach certain basic things, like how to, how to, you know, organize, how to structure a book, how to, you know, basic research techniques, but you can't teach it. There's only, there's no two ways. To, there's no, there's no one way to do it. And nobody's ever going to do it the same. It's like, it's, a, it's like a Rorschach test or something like reveal something about your personality until we just find a way to feed it all into the chatbot. And and I seriously think that like if I took all of my files, all my research files, I thought about this, and, and, and I and I just loaded them into chatbot and said write the biography, it might not be that bad. Might, you know, That's funny. Yeah. I'll be like, this is a great book. You'll be like, yeah. Turn by a computer. Good enough. Yeah. Send it in. What's your um what's your craziest What's the thing you do? Like if we if we saw you researching your book, like that I would think that's insane. That's such an inefficient way of doing this. That he's just on crack. Well, I have like forty-five or fifty legal pads full of notes on each book. And even though I'm taping my interviews, I'm also taking notes and I'm keeping everything like sort of like a general I'm taking notes on everything that I do, including like, um, you know, attempted interviews, people I'm looking for. So like the, the, the legal pads are a blueprint of, of everything, or like a, a roadmap of everything I'm doing. And yet, like, there's no way to organize that because I might be doing an interview about King's childhood. And then on the next page, I'm doing an interview about his assassination. Right? And then on the next page, I'm making a list of plumbers that I should call because we've got like a leak in the, in the laundry room. Um, so, and I never like organize and digitize that stuff. I just keep track. I just keep the notebooks numbered. So it's the one through 50. And the only way to really make use of that is to go back through the notebooks every few months and read them again to try not to forget what's in there. And there's got to be a better way. Yeah, that's terrible. Yeah, it's terrible. Do you, do you, um, I print everything out because I don't have a better way yet. And I know there are better ways, but for me, there's no better way. So I print out irresponsibly thousands and thousands and thousands of pages of stuff. Have you found a better way? I don't know if it's better, but I've stopped printing out everything. I, I only print out the stuff that I think this is so important that I damn well better not forget it. And if I put it in Google Drive or in Dropbox, I might forget it. So I'm going to print it out. And I, have a, I have a file cabinet folders, you know, year by year, important characters, and only the most important stuff gets printed out and put into those folders so that when I'm writing 1964, I'll go look and see what did I put in the folder, because these are my most important 1964 things. But then everything else is in Google Drive or Dropbox, but I use something called Paper Pile, this book, which I never used before. Is it good? It was good in some ways. It was, it was really good for search, searching across files. Um, so, and every book's different. Every book I have different organizational technique because the technology changes. Yeah. Does it make me a horrible person that I print everything out? Yes. It does? Yeah. No. I would too, except for King in particular, there's so much. I have just the LD Reddick archives. King's, I found, and I'm the first person to see it, I found it, uh, King's personal archivist became the SELC's official archivist. Thousands and thousands of pages uh, that nobody had seen before. And I could, just couldn't print all that stuff out. There's just no way. I had to get it all digitally scanned. So once it was digitally scanned, I just said that's the best it's going to get. I'm not printing it. 
Okay. <laughs> You're not gonna you may not. I don't know if you like this question or not. I will answer for myself too though. How much would you say you spend on a book, on researching a book? Travel, documents, everything. The big question there is am I breaking even? Right. Are you breaking? I don't Wait, know. How much do you love when people say, oh, I'm tired of you getting rich off of like uh, knowing that my wife is not going to listen to this podcast, okay. I will say that I'm probably spending my entire advance uh, when it comes to travel, research materials, um, hiring somebody to digitize all these archives. Sometimes the, the archives will, will do it for you and pay you. But sometimes you have to you have to hire somebody to go there and, and take pictures of every page in the file that will digitize for you. And then if you talk about the fact that I'm hiring this marketing guy and I'm hiring this publicist, I think there's a very good chance that I lost money on the King Lord. <laughs> If it sells really well, I, I I might come out ahead. But wait, this is your sixth book. Yeah. Of your five previous books, uh, how many are you getting royalties on? One out of five. I'm uh either two or three for nine. But if it's three, it's like three hundred dollars trickling in every other year. You know. Yeah. It, it cheers me to think that um, when I'm dead, my kids will get a check every six months for five hundred dollars, a thousand dollars, maybe three or four thousand dollars for the blueberry. But and, and they'll just say, Lou Gary just sent me $3,000. Thanks, Dad. And I, I love that. Oh, there's nothing better in the world than getting that random check for $583.23. It says the bad guys run royalties on it. Like, that's pretty sweet. That's good stuff. Yeah, even better if it was, you know, $50,000 right, yeah. a year, but I'll take it. Yeah. Um, do you really feel like you won't hit 10 books? This is number six. You feel like you won't be able to do, you feel like, is it the turn? Do you think you, can you be, all right, so I, when I recently was on a panel with David Marinus, I would look him up, he's 20 years older than me, and I thought, oh, that's pretty freaking, he's still kicking ass, he's 20 years older than me, that's great, he's still writing along, and in 20 years, I've written 10 books, so maybe that's another 10, you feel like you can't do, is there going to be a point where you're like, I can't do this anymore, I'm just killing no. myself? No, I can do it, the question is, do I want to, because yeah. I think the returns are diminishing, financially, and numbers of readers. So it may be that like I'm better off spending my time on a documentary or some other thing that lets me have some, a lot of the same joy, yeah. researching and writing and creating and sharing with the world. And it's just not practical anymore to keep doing books um, because the audience is, is shrinking so much. I don't know. Um, maybe if one or two of them are easy books um, that don't require six years, then I might make 10, but I'm not, I'm not sure. I'm telling you, Miley Cyrus biography by Jonathan I. You in? Yeah, I can do that. Taylor Swift, if you're listening, why aren't you returning my calls? Wait, since you said that, let's actually talk about this real quick. Last time you were out here in California, we were talking book ideas. And two of the ideas we talked about were Larry Bird and Taylor Swift. All right? I haven't even told you about Fiona Apple. I'm interested Oh, you in that did, story. actually. Yeah, yeah, I'm interested in that one, too. Oh, yes. Let's go through this one by one. I suggested Bird, right? Bird was my no, suggestion. No one listens to this, right? No, wait. Wait, Bird was my suggestion. Yeah. And you were kind of intrigued for a while, then you're like, nah, too much of a break. I don't want I don't want to be I don't want to spend that much time with him. Okay, fair enough. I don't even mean with him in person. Yeah, I, I don't it. want him in my head. Get it. Wait. Right. Then you talked about Taylor Swift. And I actually really thought about that and thought that's kind of an intriguing idea to be a you know, guy in his late thirties writing about Taylor that was a joke. Guy <laughs> writing about Taylor Swift as a biography. And you were kind of pondering I would, it. I would I would probably do that if she would grant me access because I think she's really interesting. I think she's really smart. I think she's the best um, lyricist out there today. Um, and at least in my limited um, listening. And um, and I, I'm also intrigued by writing about an artist in the middle of their career and what goes into that balance between art and commerce. And she's at the top of the game. I think it would be it'd be interesting. I would, I would go for it. So. She does listen to your, to your podcast. No, she does. Wait, and um, the weird one you mentioned, Fiona Apple. So for those of you who don't know, which is probably many of you, Fiona Apple, big sort of, I don't know what you call her, like not alternative, but kind of rock chick. Did a great song called Criminal, which I freaking love. Um, and then you brought it up and I was like, ah, that's interesting. Wait, why would you want to do a Fiona Apple? Book? I'm not criticizing. I'm actually true. This is like the ideas that I burned through. Okay. okay. Like, Fidel Castro, Fiona Apple, like right. they both make perfect sense to me. Yeah. And I burn through them. And if it comes back to me and I'm still thinking about it, you know, a year from now, then maybe there's a reason. But again, like fantastic writer, really interesting person, 
she's a court watcher in her spare time. Like, she monitors, for some reason, Maryland courts and reports on injustice and tries to make sure the courts remain open. And, and I think her, her, her music is brilliant. She only puts out, like, an album every 10 years or something. And I'm not even that big a fan. But I think I'm a frustrated musician. I love the idea of trying to document the creative process. Writing about music would be really hard because you can't describe it in words. So it would make a nice challenge. Um, I don't know. I think there's something there. If I could find the right musician to write about that was interesting and maybe you know thought could sell enough books, I'd, I'd be up for it. All right. I'll buy it. Just because I know you. Otherwise, not buying it. Maybe I'd buy it. I don't know. Actually, it's kind of a... I do like the idea. Have you considered like the idea of almost like a ride along, like six months on tour with Fiona Apple, six months with the New York Mets, six months, blah blah blah. Is that yeah, right? It's just like kind of like those John McPhee books where you go deep inside something you didn't think you cared about, yeah. and you realize that it's fascinating and it tells you something about the world. You can do it with anybody. You can do it with like like um, oh Tracy Kidder has done it with like a heart surgeon, mm-hmm. a school teacher. Like those are great books, and I love that kind of reporting. Just, you know, you and I are both old school newspaper guys and I love just embedding and that's why I love being journalist it's like backstage pass so you pick like when I was a journalist I, I did a week or two on a, on a shrimp boat like oh that's cool I, what could be cooler than that I'm getting paid to go out on a shrimp boat and learn how you catch shrimp uh, like, what was life like on the shrimp boat you don't catch it with a rod and reel which I, was the first thing I learned which would have been very inefficient you like there's big nets and you do it at night and was, have you never seen far stuff this, I'm old. This is oh, before Forrest Gump right, yeah. came out. Um, this is like 1986 or 87. I was right. I was out on the shrimp boats. Yeah, John Lafitte, Louisiana. Um, so, uh, it's the best, like having that kind of backstage access. And if I found something I was really passionate about and I thought it could sell some books, I would love to embed with somebody and just learn what their life is like. Yeah. I maintain the greatest thing about this business, this job by far. Is like, you know, I'm working on this book about Tupac as an example. You sit down with someone and you can ask them anything you want. And like, there's no other circumstances in the world where you can ask these probing questions of someone and not get punched in the face or kicked out. It's an amazing. Zena, what's your favorite? I've asked, I guess, five or six people now what Martin Luther King smelled like. Right. That's amazing. (laughs) And and I said, I always prophesize, I know. It's going to be a weird question, and you've never gotten this before, but what did Martin Luther King Jr. smell like? What did he smell like? Aramis cologne and cigarettes. Oh, yeah. He smoked a lot, right? He smoked a lot. He, he tried to hide it um, because he knew it wasn't good for his image, but he did smoke a lot. So he didn't get any... What the fuck did he smell like? I don't know his fart smell. Would you have asked that? No, I did not. I, I could have, and I did not. Like, do you, like... When you're working on this book, like, how would you how would you explain the level of uh, intensity of searching for something? Like, how what would you like? What is the level of that that you reach as far as the obsession over finding? I spent at least six months, maybe eight months, trying to find out the name of the kid who Martin Luther King played with, whose father owned the little grocery store across the street from his house. White kid or white kid? White kid. And it's important because King said that this is how he discovered racism. When he got to kindergarten, the kid wasn't allowed to play with him anymore. And that's when he went to his parents and said, he never named him. The kid across the street, who's the exact same age, isn't allowed to play with me anymore because his parents told him he can't play with the N-word people. Um, and King's parents at that point explained to him what it meant to be black in America. So I wanted to find the, the white kid who basically crashed Martin Luther King's vision of, of, uh, of world unity, and um, I, I may have found him. Wait, so what did you do? What kind of lengths did you go through the finals? Well, I went through city directories to find all the grocery stores within six blocks. Serious question: How did you find the old city directories? Library. Some of them are online, Ancestry.com. Some of them you have to go to like the pod libraries in Atlanta. I did both. Um, then you go through. Um, then I go through census reports try to find the owners of those groceries that I found in the city directory. Then I would look from the census reports for owners of groceries who had kids roughly the same age as Martin Luther King. 
and I found one or two, and I found one that appeared to be in the right location, um, but looked to me as far as I could tell that his family sold it um, before Martin Luther King turned six, so I couldn't really be sure. I, I, I called the son of that person. How'd you find the number? Google. He was a lawyer. Okay. Um, and I told him that I thought there was a chance that his father had been a playmate. I didn't tell him that, yeah, that, right, right. that your father was your father's <laughs> a racist, you know, racist family. Yeah. No, they weren't racist. No, they were no, typical no. for their time. Yeah, right. Um, they might have been racist, but we don't know that. Um, and I told him that I thought there was a chance that his father had been a playmate of Martin Luther King. He said, what, what makes you think so? And then I told him the whole story. I said, King said that he had this experience where um, there was a kid who wasn't allowed to play with him anymore. He said, if you're saying that my father was a racist, I'm going to sue your ass into new oblivion. Seriously? Yeah. Or he wasn't friendly? No, he was not friendly. Was he friendly at first? or was He, like, he was curious at first. Um, and Was his father dead? Yeah. He couldn't see you for sure. No, he couldn't see me, but that yeah. wasn't the issue. Really. Yeah. Um, but there is a responsibility there. You know, I couldn't print it unless I was 100% sure, unless he or his, you know, his wife confirmed it. Um, because I'm not going to put this guy's name in the book and say, You're, this is the racist who told Martin Luther King about racism, unless I was 100% sure. And I couldn't be, so I didn't use it. Um, but that's that was, you know, eight or nine months probably that I spent on that. And I'm still, I'd still, I'd dive back in right now if I got another lead on it. Are you upset that you don't have it? Or yeah. Is it there's certain little things like that that I decided to go after um, that were rabbit holes that didn't make it in the book at all, but I was obsessed with them. And I'm, you know, yeah. I, and I don't feel bad about it. I say this not like in any arrogant way or anything, but I do feel like, so you and I have had sustained careers in, the, in this business. And I do feel like that attention to detail, which is something we definitely share, um, it separates a lot. Like, don't you read books? where they'll be like, they'll just give these big, broad overviews and you'll just be like, nah, that's not. And it's all from other books too. Like you can see that when, you're, right. when you've done this before. And like, there's a book that won um, Pulitzer and the National Book Award for Biography. Um, and I looked in the back to see how many interviews he done. And there were hundreds of people he could have interviewed who were alive who still knew the subject of his book. And he had done six interviews with this book. Like, and that book won all the awards, right? So like, no, it was great in other ways, I guess. <laughs> Wait, do you always, whenever I read a biography, I don't, you list the interviewers, right? I did in this book. I don't, I don't know. All right, wait, so you did list the interviews in this book. I never do. Why did you? Because it's history and, and this is the last book that's going to have interviews with people in the market. Oh, that's cool. And I wanted to put the names in just to, because there's only so many people still alive who knew him. And I wanted to just, some people like David Garrow's book on King not only lists the interviews, he lists the time and date of each interview. And I didn't do that because um, it just felt like it was unnecessary and took up too much space. Um, and also, like some of these people I interviewed 10, 12 times, and it just be, right. seemed superfluous to, 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 to put all that. And I didn't keep track. Like of the ones that I interviewed 10 or 12 times, sometimes I stopped taping them after a while. Right. So I was just calling them one day. I just didn't keep track of how many times I interviewed. So you do a lot of multi interviews. I don't actually. I usually do these big chunky interviews, and then I oftentimes don't talk to a person again. You do a lot of follow-ups. Well, sometimes it's you know usually it's one big chunky interview, but if it's somebody good and they're friendly, and I can call them back and ask them a question, or I can ask them to read a little passage that I've written. Um, and during COVID, it was great because like I could call these people every day, and they were thrilled. Like they, they would have been too busy for me otherwise. But some of these old folks, especially who were you know worried about going out, they were happy to talk to me every day. Sometimes for you know, weeks at a time. Yeah. Actually, um, COVID was bad for everybody except biographers. It was great because everyone was home. Yeah, although I was really lucky that I had already been out and interviewed a lot of people in person. Right. Because there's no substitute for that. Right. If I had just been calling them on the phone, I would have, I probably would have, it would have taken me a lot longer to do the book because I probably would have waited until I could have interviewed. But then a lot of them, a lot of them passed away. Um, you know, I'd say just a quarter of the people I interviewed have passed away because uh, they were all in their 80s and 90s. You know, then I knocked on their doors. Right. Um, did you literally knock on any doors? Yeah, a few. You um, Yeah. Um, sometimes it was because uh, they were so old that they just didn't remember that I was coming or they didn't, you know. But 
Uh, there were a couple of people who I wasn't sure they were they whether to talk to me or not, and I knocked on their doors. Nobody like wasn't confrontational. Like I wasn't knocking on doors of his right. you know, alleged mistresses or anything like Would that. Would you ever? It was one that I was tempted. It was one woman in particular whose door I was tempted to knock on, and I just decided it wasn't wasn't appropriate. Like I just I thought about it. I thought about leaving her a note on the door, but I had already called her and mailed her letters, and it was clear she did not want to. Sorry, I don't want to talk, and I just decided it was best to be respectful. But it was a tough call. I mean, there was a moment where I, I drove past her house, and I like, am I, go, am I knocking or am I not knocking? And I didn't, I, I didn't go. Now, what's interesting about that, I don't know if you remember this. I was in Alabama researching Bo Jackson, and I was outside his agent's house, and I called you because I was like, I don't know. And you're like, knock on the door. And I did knock on the door. Yeah. You should have called me. I would have told you to knock on the door. You made a big maybe, maybe. Uh, could be I made a mistake, but. It's a, gut, it's a gut call. It's a judgment call. Yeah. Wait, what do you consider, okay, if you see a book and it's about a living person, in your mind, what is the over under of number of interviews a person has to do where you're like, okay, that guy did, that person did some work? It really depends on how accessible the people are, but you know, if it's a, if it's a living figure and there's literally hundreds of people who knew that person well still around, you got at least have done 50 interviews, I think, yeah. to... to, to Six doesn't cut it for you. No, six did not cut it for me. Yeah, that's fair. Um, let me ask you a final question. I'm sure I asked you this last time on my podcast. Maybe I have a renewed one. Give me your most awkward confrontation or situation you've had in your maybe recent, more recent literary career, in case you gave me one from maybe a Wall Street Journal days in the past. You got one? Good confrontation? Ferdy uh, Pacheco. Like Bertie Pacheco, the fight doctor, Ali's. Ali's fight doctor. And, and this, this happens a lot. Um, he's dead now. Right? He's dead. Um, <laughs> I, I almost killed him. Um, he almost killed me. Um, look, when you're starting out in a book, you're an idiot, right? And, and you're trying to interview old people before you're really prepared sometimes because you're rushing. And somebody has to be... You're rushing because you want to die. You're, right. You're rushing because these are old folks and you and you and you're, you got to start somewhere with your interviews. And I hadn't really become an expert on Ali yet. I wasn't even close. Um, but I had an opportunity to, in, to interview him. Um, my father-in-law knew somebody who knew somebody and said, you know, here's his number, here's his address. He, I, he did not answer the phone. His wife answered the phone and she said, yeah, yeah, come by and talk to him. But he doesn't talk about Ali. He doesn't like to talk about Ali anymore. But if you want to come by, go for it. I said, okay, fine. Wait, let me just interrupt by saying, obviously you're thinking in your head. I throw some questions. I throw some, Hey, how you doing? How about the Yankees? Blah, blah, blah. And it leads into Ali. Yeah, I'm thinking I'm going to ask him about his painting. Right. He's a paint. He's a, you know he's a, he loved painting and he sold it. He sold artwork. And then I'm going to ask him if he ever painted Ali. And then we're going to talk about Ali for the next three hours. That's my plan. Yeah. Genius. Right. And not uh, original, but a good plan. <laughs> we all do that shit. And I should say that like Andrew Young was my Ferdy Pacheco on the King book. Like he was my first interview. He was pissed because I didn't. I wasn't smart. I didn't have my questions weren't very good. They were bored um, because I wasn't really an expert yet. Somebody's got to be first. Um, Pretty Pacheco, as soon as I turned the subject, as soon as I said, oh, you so show me one of your paintings about Ali. Tell me what was Ali like? He said, I'm not talking about Ali. I thought you wanted to talk about something else. And I, no, I, I do. Said, I, I do. I, you know, um, I can tell from your bookshelf that you're, an, you know, you're, a, you're serious about your history. You've got all these great history books and, you know, you were a witness to history. So I just wanted to know what you saw. And get out of my house. He actually said get out of my yeah, house. To get out of my house. But he had just had a stroke and he wasn't moving really well and he, he couldn't get up out of his chair. So. All right, I, I have to ask this. What is the awkwardness like when he says to you, get out of my house? <laughs> How much more awkward could it be? And that's it. You know, like, thankfully his wife had left. So, like, there was no one else here, no one else to hear this exchange. Like, I was alone in the house. Um, if his wife had been there, she probably would have said, you know, I think you should leave. But I was just determined to sit there as long as I possibly could. And I said, well, um, you know, that's fine. You know, uh, I'll, I'll, I'll leave, but, you know, just let me ask you something else. Uh, um, I hung in there for about 25 minutes. Wow. And um, he was yelling at me most of the time. That, he kept saying, that's a basic question. That's basic. That was like over and over on my tape. I, so I, 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 I took out a tape recorder. I didn't ask him if I could record. I just took out a tape recorder, put it on the table, and started taping, and he didn't seem to notice or care. And so I have the recording. This kept saying, "That's basic." Like everything I ask, that's basic. You're an idiot. Like, just get out of here. Literally telling me to get out like several times. And um, finally, like 
even though he was mad, he started to say stuff that was useful. I said, so when did you first notice brain damage? And I'll like, well, 71. He says, no, wait, 71, that, that can't be right. I was like, that's when he just came back. I was like, the Frazier fight. I 71, you know, and, and I said, so you notice brain damage in 71, why? I, I know you quit and you refused to be in this corner because you were concerned about him, but that was like 78. And he's just getting madder and madder. Uh, but now I'm asking good questions and he's and he's telling me interesting, important stuff. And he said, you know, my job, I'm the fight doctor. I'm not just the doctor, I'm the fight doctor. My job is to get him ready to fight. And that means, you know, everybody's counting on me to get him ready to fight. So if I'm, if I'm just, if I'm there to shut him down and I'm not doing my job. So it was really interesting, yeah. but it was, you know, every, it was, like, it was worse. It was like pulling your own teeth. Yeah. Wait, wouldn't you, um, this honestly entered my head, you tell me this. I feel like there's nothing more uh, misleading. It's like a mirage, actually. The cranky old person who doesn't want to talk to you because generally they're cranky and by nature they're going to first be sort of repulse you away. But I feel like if you stick with old people, they generally win. No, do you disagree? I feel like old people want to talk to them. They have a lot of stories to tell right. and, 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 and they want people to appreciate what they've been through and appreciate their experience. In general, that's true for everybody. That's why you know, people will talk to us. It's not because they want to help us write books. It's because they want to be heard. And most of the time that's important and we're, we're respectful of that and we're a wonderful cooperative partnership because they want to be heard and we want to listen. But, um, but sometimes, you know, it's uh, it's hard. You know, so you went to Andrew Young and uh, he was, was he happy to see you but not happy with your questions or what happened? Neither. He was not happy to see me. He kept saying, "Why am I doing this interview? Who, who, who intervened here to arrange this?" Because is he in bad shape. No, he's in good shape. Um, he was in a like one of those little wheelchair uh, motor motor scooter things, but mentally sharp as a tack. But I had called in like three different favors to get him to to give me an appointment, and he couldn't remember who's he was doing this for, like what favor he he was fulfilling, and he didn't understand why I was there. Who I was, I wasn't. I didn't have a TV camera with me. I didn't have a crew, um, so it's just me with my little notebook and my little tape recorder, and I'm writing a book. And he doesn't know whether I'm a serious dude or a you know college, you know, working on my college master's thesis. He's like, blues to see this guy, and the guy's asking pretty basic questions. Just that's basic, you know. Like, um, and he kept looking at his watch, and he literally said, "I was like, why am I doing this interview again? Like, who who set this up?" And I tried to explain to him, and, and it just went terribly. Like, I got almost nothing out of it. Wow. But then I went back with a TV crew, and he sat for hours twice with us because Why that good? he took seriously. Well, I, I can't really talk about it. Um, but I, I went back. I helped arrange a TV crew that wanted to interview him for a documentary. That I can talk about. And, um, and he was happy to do that. He was fully engaged. He was really into it. And he was happy, you know, and I, I sat with him and talked to him, you know, for an hour while they were setting up the cameras. And then, you know, an hour. Did he remember after, you? No. <laughs> Did he remember you? No. I was counting on him. Do you not bring a copy of a book? I bring a copy of my book every interview I do. And I usually give it. I'll be like, here, here's a copy of mine. Do you not do that? Yeah, I do sometimes. Do you not bring Andrew Long? I would think Andrew Young, you're out of book. You'd be like, oh, it's great. I'm, I'm pretty sure I had already sent it to him, but I probably should have carried a copy in with me. I don't think I did that time. Um, I just want to say... When I was in high school, I was a senior in high school. I don't want to brag. I was a sports editor of the Mailpack High School Chieftain. You might have heard of it. Yeah, of course. And I arranged an interview through a favor with uh, Victor Kayyem, who is the owner of the New England Patriots. And he agreed to do an interview with me. And they patched me through. Mr. Kayyem, we have Jeff Perlman from the Mailpack High School student newspaper line. Who is this? Uh, my name's Jeff Perlman. I'm a student newspaper writer. I don't, I don't know anything about this. What do you... What? I don't, I'm sorry. I don't have time for this click. So I got I got hardened early. Oh, I got a good story for you. Yeah. So I was an intern at San Jose Mercury News um, after my senior year of college. That's a good interest. Really hoping that it would turn into a job, and it didn't. Um, and uh, there was a big controversy at the time of the sports pages because people wanted Steve Stone fired as the announcer for the Giants because they thought he was too much of a partisan. He was really too much for the Giants. And I said, what are you talking about? Like, I grew up with Phil Rizzuto. Like, that's all he does is yeah. cheer for the Yankees. And the Yankees are coming to town next next week. 
why don't I go do a profile for Rizzuto and we'll, and I'll show you what you know rooting for the home team is really like on the air. So I go to the ballpark uh, and uh, this is a little bit of the A's, but um, I get this. What year is this? 1986. Bad year. So I spent three days um, in, the, in the broadcast with Phil Rizzuto, Bill White. Mickey Mantle is doing radio at that point. I interviewed Mickey Mantle. No big deal. Bobby Mercer comes out of the elevator. He's doing radio too at the time. Or maybe he's doing some of the TV, something for Rizzuto. I can't remember. And I break out and go sweat. God, it's Bobby Mercer. Um, he was my biggest hero as a kid. So, like, Mickey Mantle, no problem. I went right up to him okay. and said, can I ask you a few questions? Um, he's cool. Bobby Mercer, I, um, Mr. Mr. Mercer, um, can, can I talk to you about Phil Rizzuto? I'm writing a story. And I'm literally, like, sweat is pouring down off my face. And he says, are you okay? Um, he said, yeah, what? Well, uh, so he sits down with me. And I couldn't interview him. I, I was too nervous. I was, I was like, I couldn't get the words out. I was so nervous to be in the presence of Bobby Mercer. That was, that was one of my all-time words. Okay, I just want to one-up you and say, when I did the John Rocker story, and in 2000, I went to Atlanta and faced John Rocker for the first time, and he screamed at me and threw me out. Bobby Mercer was the only guy standing in the tunnel. And when it was over, he comes up to me, and he goes, are you okay? And I go, not not really. So we were both terrified in the presence of Bobby Mercer. And, and, and Mercer was a great guy. Very nice. Yeah, that's very funny. Um, all right, well, listen, I appreciate you uh, doing this. I believe this book is going to be a huge seller, but it's out of our control. You know? Well, I am buying a lot of Facebook ads. You're buying a lot of Facebook ads. You hired pretty, you know, body toddy uh, publicists. You're going barren this route. I'm going broke on this. Yeah, but that's okay. Yeah. So uh, thank you for doing it. Thanks, Bridget. I want to thank today's guest, Jonathan Eig, for joining me on Two Writers Singing Yang. You can follow John on Twitter at Jonathan Eig and visit his website, jonathanig.com, and pre order King of Life wherever books are pre-ordered. If you have a chance and enjoy Two Riders Singing Yang, please go to the vehicle of your choice and leave a nice review. I'd really appreciate it. Music is by the extraordinary MC White Owl. Thanks again for joining me. And remember, keep riding. <laughs>